Welcome to The Protagonistas, a podcast that is centered on highlighting the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color among communities of faith. Our conversations sit at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm your host, Kat Armas. Friends, today you are in for such a special treat because you get to hear from Dr. Amy Kenny. So Dr. Amy Kenny has become one of my like absolute favorite theologians. Uh, her new book, uh, which we will be talking about in the episode, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, Disability Justice in the Church, is such rich theological work uh, that many of us probably have never wrestled with in regard to disability. Um, it's also hilarious and um, just full of so much wisdom and how we can do better as uh, Christians and as people, as a society, um, to be inclusive of everyone in our midst, particularly those with uh, disabilities. Um, because the same systems that perpetuate patriarchy and white supremacy and all of the other isms that we are working against uh, as Christians are the same systems that uphold ableism. And it affects every single one of us, our relationships with our bodies, our relationships to one another, to quote unquote productivity, whatever that means, uh, to money, to time. I mean, you name it. Amy walks through all of these things in her book, how we can embrace um, crip time, as she calls it, um, which is just a cyclical view of time, which I absolutely love uh, because that is something that I actually talk about in my upcoming book, which I am so excited to talk to you guys more about uh, soon as it gets closer. So we certainly need disability justice, and I am so incredibly grateful for Amy's wisdom. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Before I play the episode, I did want to read to you a small excerpt from her book so you can just get an idea of what Amy is getting at, what Amy, sort of the crux of um, her book. And so I'll go ahead and read this small portion. It says, some of the irony is that my life isn't disastrous or deficient at all. Most days, my disability isn't the worst part of my day or even what I need prayer for. To assume that my disability needs to be erased in order for me to live an abundant life is disturbing, not only because of what it says about me, but also because of what it reveals about people's notions of God. I bear the image of the Alpha and the Omega. My disabled body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. I have the mind of Christ. There's no caveat to those promises. I don't have a junior Holy Spirit because I am disabled. To suggest that I'm anything less than sanctified and redeemed is to suppress the image of God in my disabled body and to limit how God is already at work through my life. Maybe we need to be freed not from disability, but from the notion that it limits the ability to showcase God's radiance to the church. What we need to be freed from is ableism. And I just want to say a resounding amen to Amy and all of the ways that she um, teases that out in this book. And so I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you learn as much as I did uh, about just all the things that we need to learn about disability justice and how to be um, and how to foster a more inclusive on heaven as it is on earth society and world um, for all of us to flourish. And so I hope you enjoy and welcome to the protagonistas. 
Today on the protagonistas, we are here with uh, Dr. Right, Amy Kenny. Um, thank you so much, Amy, for being here and chatting with me. Um, I have so enjoyed watching your reels on Instagram and also just reading some of the articles that you've put out um, about disability and just about your experiences. So welcome. Wow. Thanks for having me. I love your book. I love your work. It's just an honor to be here. So I would love to just hear about your spiritual background. How did you get to where you are um, as far as, you know, your faith journey? Yeah. What a question. I am originally from Australia and I grew up there Methodist and then moved when I was a kid to California um, and moved to Canada first, actually, then California. And then since then, I've moved to the UK and then back to California. So I've moved around a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I think that really instilled in me a sense of the global church and a sense Mm -hmm. of the diversity of worship practices and people groups and different ways of thinking about God. And it also, and it gave me a sense of the expansive mystery that is God, because I was in um, many different non-denominational and evangelical and different types of traditions and flavors growing up. And I think also it really instilled in me a sense of the in-between. So Mm. I am Australian by birth and now U.S. American, but I'm not really either of those. I'm kind of a a mix of those and that sort of in-between nature of being both and being able to speak Mm -hmm. to both and have experiences with both, but neither culture really fully embracing me Mm -hmm. as their own. Yeah. Yeah. And so as far as um, like theologically, excuse me, um, what has been your journey of just, you know, being in so many denominations and just your understanding of God in general? Yeah, I think that I understand God as love. I think I I believed that part of scripture that said, right. yeah, right? Know. I know it's like um, feels so radical. Yeah, <laughs> wild. And I understand you know when we quote often it's quoted at wedding ceremonies and stuff like that, but when we quote that long list of what love is, that's how I understand God. God is patient. God is kind. God keeps no record of wrongs. God is all of those things because God is love. Right. So of course there's, you know, different things that I believe beyond that, but I think this idea that God is love is really foundational to how I understand Mm. who God is and how God shows up in my life. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, it's funny because like I, um, you know, as I've talked about on like social media, like my decolonizing, right, or, you know, deconstructing, and a lot of people aren't really wanting to use that word much anymore, deconstructing, but, you know, this journey, it's really just like a, a radical belief that God is like actually love, you know, and it really does feel like so, um, yeah, what a concept, you know, because for so long, God has been so many other things for us, right? Um, mm-hmm. God has been, yeah, judge or ruler or warrior or, you know, all of these um, colonial sort of ideologies or, or, you know, militarized imperial uh, descriptions um, that for God to just be love, you know, feels, and I say just when it's not just, but, you know, for God to be love feels, um, yeah, like so radical as I keep saying. So, yeah, yeah, I think people, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think people think it's, weak or right. feminine, or, and that says a lot about what yes. they think about women and what's feminized, yes. right? Mm-hmm. But also I think people think love is easy or that it's somehow 
yeah, this sort of fluffy feeling right. and it's none of those things. Love can be really strong and brave yeah. and hard at coincidentally, all the things I think women are Yeah, the, this idea that a parent's love for their child is something fluffy. I mean, that's right, silly, right. you know, yeah. to say yeah. love compels us to do love has compelled me to do wild and scary things. Mm, and so yeah. how much the more God, God's love for us. Yeah. Yeah. When, as you were saying that, I just kept thinking like, love is probably one of the most courageous, um, things, you know? And so to, um, as you mentioned, you know, it's funny, I've been writing about that, about how, um, and I've been writing about the connection of women and nature and how nature and women have been, you know, they're sort of given the same descriptions, you know, feminine and carnal and um, uh, unpredictable and, you know, all of these descriptions um, that need to be overcome, right? You need to tame and overcome nature and women. And yeah, and so just thinking of love in that aspect too, you know, you think of nurturing, which is also a feminine quality um, and is also you know, an aspect of love. And so, yeah, anyway, that that's good. Um, glad that you brought that up. Well, can you talk to me a little bit more about, and I'm sure that this kind of also speaks to your book, your upcoming book, congratulations. Um, my body is not a prayer request. Um, it, this idea of in between, this idea of both and, um, yeah, can you just talk to us a little bit about that and how that has spoken into who you are and how you relate and know and engage in the world? Yeah, I so often find myself in the in-between because I am an immigrant and I'm a white immigrant. So that comes with its own privileges. Right. And I am an immigrant of a country that speaks English and English is my first language. And yet we use a lot of different colloquialisms and words and we have a very different culture. And so there's a type of erasure, I think, of people not really even understanding the in-between or the code switching that has to take place. And then also I'm in the in-between physically in terms of, I think, my experience as a disabled woman has led me to be in these in-between ideologies of what it means to be well or what it means to have health or to have a type of wholeness. People look at my body and place a lot of notions of it being broken or being bad or need of fixing. And yet I don't feel those things. So I feel in the in-between in that sense. And I think also that you know, I now find myself in the academy and teaching students. And yet I grew up in a household that wasn't, didn't have very much understanding about academia or research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my grandma didn't finish seventh grade. My mom didn't finish high school Right. where I'm first gen, you know, so there's an in-between of that as well, of trying to do the work of explaining what it is you do and how you spend your time to people who who don't necessarily have a context for that or a framework and still honoring them Mm -hmm. and not acting as though, because I now have a couple of fancy degrees that, that, you know, equips me with any more knowledge or any more strength or uh, meaning than Mm -hmm. family members who do not. So I think in many aspects of my life, I'm talking to people with really different 
understandings of what it means to live and what it means to be whole and well. And so that can feel isolating at times, Mm -hmm. but it also has given me the ability to be able to talk to different people about my experience and, and try to open up understandings of lived experience is just as valuable as academic Mm -hmm. knowledge and things like that. Yeah. You're speaking my language. I, you know, I I talk so much about that in the beginning of Aulita Faith, like this idea of like informal, quote unquote, informal knowledge, um, but how that knowledge, you know, is the superior knowledge. And not that I'm against intellectual knowledge, right? I mean, I have degrees as well, not as many as you do, but I do have degrees as well. And so, um, yeah, but it's this wrestling and this um, just, uh, yeah, wrestling with an embodied lived uh, theology or knowledge that literally lives inside of our bodies and in our bones and um, not just in our minds, right? Um, I love that you mentioned the notion of being in between when it comes to the academy. I feel like that is the experience of many, um, well, yes, first generation people in schooling for sure. But also, yeah, just a lot of like folks like myself, you know, who my family immigrated here and, you know, obviously you're an immigrant as well. But yeah, just this idea that like, my family literally has no idea what I'm talking about. I was on a podcast recently with another Latina woman and, and she was like, so what does your abuela think about, you know? And I was like, she doesn't, she's not very impressed that I'm writing books. You know, I mean, she thinks it's great. You know what? I mean, she's very old at this point. She has dementia, but it's not, um, you know, very impressive to them because there's no framework for that. Right. There's no framework for like what exactly it is I'm doing or why I'm, you know, getting more degrees. Um, so I love that you mentioned that. Cause I think a lot of people, um, a large, a lot of marginalized identities, I feel like really, really struggle with that or just live in that reality. And so, yeah, thanks for mentioning that. And I'd love to know, can you talk to me a little bit about your journey in the academy? Um, I, I know that you have this like funny sort of detail in, in your description that you are a Shakespeare lecturer who hates Hamlet. Can you talk to us a little bit just about your journey in, in, in the academy and what you're doing? Yeah, I do say that up front because I don't understand this fascination with Hamlet. He is mean to his mom. That's a red flag. He hates women and hates and is very open with his misogyny. And that's a huge red flag. And he just sort of goes on and on about his first world problems. (laughs) So (laughs) I really find him irritating. But of course, the Academy loves Hamlet because that pretty much epitomizes so much of what's centered in the Academy. Misogyny, um, self-absorption, thinking that your own ideas are more important than other people's lived experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, my journey in the Academy has been a really bumpy one as a disabled woman, I often have felt like I don't have very much support there. And like, I am more there as a token or a mascot Mm -hmm. or a photo op that look at this professor using a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm everyone's first professor who uses a wheelchair. I get that from evals or just from students saying to me all the time, I didn't know professors could use a wheelchair. Wow. What a concept, you know? Yeah. So I think that is often isolating and I'm in a position of precarity in the academy where I am. So I'm on renewable contracts. So that often Mm -hmm. feels a little bit tenuous in terms of, you know, how much stability there is and how much longevity. But I think that overall I have chosen testimony over title 
And that mm-hmm. comes um, by way of my community and kind of working out what it, what it is that I am called to and what it is that I am faithful to. And it's not a title and it's not tenure and it's not longevity or a salary, although I wouldn't deny those things. Right. <laughs> but but it is being faithful to the work of trying to recreate flourishing for students and get them to think and create beyond what they have been able to do before. So it looks like a lot of ungrading, a lot of Mm anti-ableist structures and assignment design and policies, a lot of anti-racist practices, really trying to undo the bias that so often happens in the academy. Yeah. Wow. That's holy and sacred work (laughs) for sure. Um, okay. So I want to talk about your, your new book. Um, so there's this description that I just absolutely love because I've been, like I said, I've been writing about nature and I've been writing about all of this sort of stuff. And so I'm going to read it. Um, and then I'd love for you to just, yeah, use that as like a jumping pad to share what you want to about the book. Um, so here it says, What comes to mind when you think about disability? Maybe an elderly relative or a movie villain looking at you, Darth Vader. What about a shark? They're nonverbal. Or an octopus? They're deaf. What about an elephant born blind? Throughout nature, we value the diversity that disability brings. My Body is Not a Prayer Request invites readers to apply that same imagination to our disabled neighbors. That is incredible. So can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I think a lot of times when people think about disability or when they comment to me about my body, it is thought that disability is just sad, it's mm-hmm. tragic, it's it's suffering, it's looking up into the sky and praying for a time when we're released from this right disabled body. And while of course, all of those things can be true and disability is not a monolith We're 26% of the US population, 15% of the global population. So of course there's a range of experiences there, but a lot of the work that I am inviting us to do and to think about in this book is to get away from thinking about disability as a loss and instead think of it as a gain. Mm. Disability is a culture. It's an embodied experience. We have embodied wisdom and gifts to share with the church and with the world. And we we should be learned from. Yeah. And instead, often we're just dismissed or silenced. And so this book is kind of a clap back to that and a mm. clap back to everyone who's tried to pray me away. Mm. And it's an invitation for people to think beyond just pitying or even giving charity to disabled people. And instead... Yeah learn from us. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. So I want to follow up with two things. So you talk about, you know, uh, pity and, and how folks sort of grieve, you know, um, your, you know, your body. Um, but you wrote in an article that you wrote, I love this line, and I would love for you to just kind of elaborate on this. You say, um, don't grieve for futures that haven't happened yet, because those are the ones we still have the potential to change. Perhaps instead of grieving, Folks should have collaborated to create a new world where I could flourish. 
Perhaps instead of wasting crocodile tears on an imagined future, they should have used their power to change that future. Disabled people don't need your pity or your pre-grief. And so you kind of talk about this idea of like, don't grieve me, grieve the systems that, you know, stop my stop me from flourishing, right? And not just, you know, just dis disabled people, but all of us, right? These systems yes. affect all of us in horrific ways. I mean, you know, hyper-individualism, and these are things that I suffer in my body, right? Like, um, you know, this hyper work ethic of just working myself until I can't anymore, like all of these things that the system, you know, um, yeah, put, puts upon all of us. So if you want to talk a little bit about this notion of not grieving you or, but grieving, yeah, that. Yeah. There's such a spiritual bypassing that happens when people grieve my body because it places the problem with me and right. it changes it from an individual, from a collective problem to an individual problem. Yes. So it says that what's wrong here is my body and I need to be fixed. Right. And it misses out on the part that there's actually this social model of disability, that the environment is what disables us. If yes. we had bothered to put ramps everywhere, it wouldn't be difficult for me to get around using a right. wheelchair. If we made sure that we had accessible systems and practices, it wouldn't be difficult to live in a disabled body mind. And of course, that doesn't quite work with every disability. You know, it, it's a broad category and constellation of experiences but right. we so often reduce it to an individual is the problem instead of right. society using ableist structures that create these problems. Right. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. And I feel like that's, you know, the issue with so many of our, you know, marginalized identities, right? We need to be, it's, it's not an individual problem. It's a systemic problem. And yeah, we don't need to be grieving um, or pitying, um, the way that that system affects people, what we need to do is fight fight against the system. Um, I would like to ask you kind of along these lines as well, um, which by the way, I loved your, your quote here, the environment is what disables us. Yes, I'm going to quote you on that for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about, and it's kind of along these lines, disability as wisdom. And so in Abuelita Faith, you know, I talk about, I sort of um, wrestle with this idea of knowledge, right? And like, and we talked about, you know, a little bit in the beginning of this conversation about knowledge, but this idea of wisdom, right? And like, who is wise? Who gets to say who is wise, right? Um, colonialism, right? Or colonial ideology or are, you know, the academy, obviously that stems from, from the white elite male, um, so white, able-bodied, straight, you know, all the, the markers, elite male, um, you know, tells us what knowledge is or what, who is wise, right? Um, but how can disability speak to, um, you know, a, a new wisdom, a new knowledge, a new other, another way of being and knowing in the world that leads to our liberation? Hey everyone, it's Kat. As a space for highlighting the stories of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color, this podcast has been important for so many listeners. And I would not be able to do this podcast if it weren't for the support of every single one of you. But beyond listening, you can help the show in other ways too. The first is obviously by heading over to your podcast app of choice and writing us a review. It helps the show greatly and doesn't cost you a dime to do it. That said, if you do have the funds to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas to learn more how your dollars can go to help fuel the growth of this podcast. For just a cup of coffee per month, you can keep this important work going. 
Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas. I think about time and how we experience time and colonized ideologies would tell us that time is linear and that it has to be used for always leveraged to produce because the product is what's valuable in capitalism. And of course, disabled people can't not just flourish. We can't survive in a system where we have to keep producing because we can't keep up. Now that's true for everyone, isn't it? None of us can keep up. It's just that non-disabled people can fool themselves for longer often. So time experienced as crip time is nonlinear. It's messy. It's chaotic. One moment I can get out of bed by myself or put on my shoes by myself. And another moment I cannot, I need help getting dressed. And in both of those moments, I am human. I am valued. I am loved. It is just that time isn't a linear progression towards success or productivity. It is more chaotic. And I think many of us have experienced this with grief. One moment you can go outside and things seem somewhat normal, whatever that is. And then you smell your grandma's soap or -hmm. perfume and you're instantly transported to the moment that she died. Right. And that is often what it feels like to live in a disabled body mind, that time isn't always progressing for us or isn't always in an expected linear fashion. And I think non-disabled people could learn from that to stop living by clocks and calendars and instead live by the wisdom of what our bodies are telling us. Mm. Yeah, that's so good. I actually just posted a little Instagram thing about this, the notion of time as nonlinear and time as like cyclical, you know, and and it follows the seasons and the sun rises and it sets, right? And then we experience winter and then fall and then, you know, and it's this cyclical um, notion. And if we follow that, I think that that is exactly what you're saying, this notion of just like, what do our body, what are our bodies doing? What do our bodies do in the morning and at night? And what is the natural progression uh, or not progression, I guess is the right word, but the natural way that um, our, yeah, our, our, our clocks, our internal, you know, whatever is inside of us, the natural way that it is functioning um, and in the world, right? I mean, you see life and death constantly in the seasons and the cyclical notion of time, right? Um, and death is not, or, you know, as something is dying in the natural world, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? As things are deteriorating in the natural world, that's because, you know, it's just a, again, it's, it's a process and they'll re-flourish, you know, next season. And so I think of that as you're, you're saying, you know, one day your body can do one thing and the next day, you know, it cannot, but it will, you know, continue on in this cycle, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, that is 100% um, another form of wisdom, as I was asking in my last question. Um, thank you. And as you're saying that, you know, because this idea of, of time is nonlinear, I mean, that is like decolonial thought, right? That is a, a decolonial way of thinking. And it's just like this thought popped into my head that like you essentially cannot really decolonize without leaning into a, a disability theology or a disability, a notion of, you know, disability. Um, So, you know, I feel like a lot of people who are on this journey of decolonizing, I think that this is 
central and vital to that journey, you know, um, but yet it is still something that is not even central in the conversation. Um, so yeah. yeah. Um, and so can not you just, because sorry. not just because co-flourishing is dependent on one another and it's wrapped up in each other's flourishing. So we should want for our disabled neighbors to be able to thrive so that right. we can, but right. also because by either age or accident, you might become disabled as well. Right. Or you may have temporary bouts of disability. Mm -hmm. And I think often lurking beneath a lot of the dismissal of the disability community or the silence and erasure of us is the fear of mm -hmm. people kind of realizing maybe even subconsciously they might join us one day. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. I think that is a, a truth about um, disability that, I mean, what is the statistic? I don't know if you know off the top of your head, but like most people will be disabled at some point in their lives, whether by age or yeah, by, you know, another thing. I mean, I think the majority of people will at some point. And so, um, yeah, I, I love that you kind of frame that in this, in this idea of facing fears, right? Um, fears that again, have been, um, put onto us, right. Um, by society, um, by colonial ideology, by, you know, all the things, all the, all the things that we're trying to dismantle. Um, so can you talk to me a little bit about disability in the Bible uh, or disability and just theology, Jesus, um, you know, all the spiritual things you want to talk a little bit about how you, um, yeah, understand your faith in, in light of it. Yeah, I have had such a different experience with disability in the Bible and my lived experience of disability in my faith mm. compared to the way I've experienced being disabled in church spaces. Mm. I think the former has been a way it's it's enriched my faith, it's enriched my mm. understanding of Jesus as the disabled Christ. Yeah. I understand so many characters in scripture as disabled, everyone from Paul to Jacob to Timothy to Mephibosheth, you know, mm -hmm. to Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think about God as disabled. It has only enhanced my understanding of what it means to bear God's image. Mm -hmm. That isn't wrapped mm -hmm. up for me in notions of productivity or perfection mm -hmm. or independence all that come to us from colonialism and right. racism and um, and different forms of ableist hierarchies, I know deep in my bones that I have worth on mm. days when I can't get out of bed and on days when I seemingly appear successful to the yeah. capitalist market. And right. so it has only enhanced my understanding of all of us bearing God's image and what it means to have worth and to be loved. Mm. And unfortunately, that hasn't been my experience in the church. Right. I have had lots of well-intentioned people try to give me prayers or potions or curatives or talk about disability just as sinful or as bad. Right. And that hasn't been my experience at all. Yeah. Uh, as you were talking about um, the former, about, you know, how you read the Bible and, and how faith is, is, yeah, and disability has been so for, uh, so nourishing and, and encouraging. I thought of, um, and I was thinking about this earlier, and I don't know why it just popped into my head as you were saying that, but, uh, you know, when, when God calls God self, I am, 
-hmm. And I was thinking earlier about how, you know, when we are free from these systems that, you know, force us to perform and to, you know, become something and to be productive or to, you know, all of these things that we've been talking about. Um, there's something subversive about a God who like, I just am right. And us like made in God's image. If we are really, you know, leaning into our Imago day, then also we are free to just be right. Like, I, you know, God is, I am. So I, you know, in the image of God, I am too. And I just am, and I can just be free from all of these um, systems that are telling me that I have to um, perform my identity versus just being, you know, who I am. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more just about um, how you find, you know, liberation in the Bible and um, talk to us maybe some about some of the characters that you mentioned, um, how you see them disabled and, and also, you know, just a disabled God. I mean, that for me has been just such a beautiful shift um, in my faith and has been, um, yeah, just something that has really nourished me um, spiritually, just seeing my God as disabled. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? Because yeah. if we are made in the image of a God who is, and then fill in all of the blanks of what, you know, cishet, ableist, white supremacist culture tells us is important, producing and having some sort of influence or status and being successful mm -hmm. on paper. If that is who God is and we're made in that image, then we can never measure up and we no. can never get there. And we're constantly right. on a hamster wheel of performing our worth and trying right. to outprove one another. Hello, capitalism. And <laughs> it's and we can never get there. Right. But if we're made in the image of a God who says, you are very good and you mm. radiate and that yeah. goodness isn't located in the thing itself, as Lisa Sharon Hopper's work has shown us, it's between us, mm -hmm. then the flourishing is what matters. And it's not right. the individual perfection. Mm. I think about how disability is often connected to blessing in scripture, mm -hmm. but we mm -hmm. don't have the tools to read it that way because we've been taught disability is lack and mm -hmm. loss. Mm -hmm. Right. And when Jacob becomes disabled, he understands that as gracious. Hmm. He blesses the next generation. He shifts from trying to be part of this culture that is always producing and collecting and using these status symbols of stuff to prove he is worthy and lying about his name and lying about who he is. And he shifts into being able to see his brother as an image bearer. Hmm. And that disability is often read as a punishment right. or yeah. something from God that's haha, -ha, put him in his place. Yeah. What a sad small view of God mm. and what a sad small view of disability. Right. And I think about Paul stone in the flesh, or I think about Mephibosheth and being invited to David's banquet. I think about Jesus telling us in the parables, I think it's in Luke 14 that the great banquet, which is usually thought of as an image of new creation, that the mm. great banquet has poor and disabled people invited first. Mm. The great banquet is accessible. Yeah. They're not cured or fixed. They right. don't get some sort of, you know, beach body in yeah. exchange for yeah. being in this magical universe. They're, they're simply invited and scented 
and then access needs are met Mm -hmm. and they get to dine at a table with the living God. Yeah. That's so good. That's so beautiful. Um, that just made me think of, you know, I, I remember hearing when I was not even younger, I mean, recently, like, you know, in my evangelical days or whatever, but I remember hearing that like, when we're, when everyone's resurrected, we're going to be like in our perfect state, like 30. I remember hearing like literally the age 30. <laughs> we're going to be like, because that's like the, I don't know, like age of maturity. I don't even know. Where does like, that come from? <laughs> I but I like literally heard that. I don't know. I hope I'm not the only one because it's really silly now, you know, obviously repeating it, but, but yeah, so we're going to be like, you know, in the prime of our lives and that's, you know, that's how we're going to be in heaven. And if you think about it, you know, it's just so like opposite of what we actually ex- see or, you know, experience in the resurrection of Jesus, right? Like Jesus yeah. literally resurrects with wounds and somehow we're all supposed to resurrect like without any, you know, like and that makes absolutely no sense. Make it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember having communion one time at church and someone complained because they were uncomfortable receiving communion from a disabled woman. Wow wait until they find out what the communion represents. Right. Right. And we say these phrases, this is my body broken for you. And yet we see what is often perceived as a broken body, my own sitting in front of you, serving you the body of Christ. And you can't connect the dots. (laughs) Come on. We are so, so separated from the idea that disability can be holy and can be divine that we would have the nerve to complain about that. And Mm, even thinking about, you know, Jesus is showing off these wounds. He's saying, look at these marks of holiness and redemption. These aren't anything to be ashamed of or to cover up or to try to hide, to get away with performing that able body. No, these are the beautiful marks of holiness and of our own redemption. Right. Right. And, you know, Jesus invites those around him, like, come be a part of it, touch it, you know, touch my wounds. Like, you know, it's such a, such an embodied, you know, not just for him physically, but it's like a communal embodied reality, you know, where, um, you know, we are invited to partake in that, you know, in that broken, you know, body in that wounded body. Um, yeah, I mean, it is just, and that's where I see again, this notion of like disability as wisdom, you know, disability as embodied wisdom, um, because there is something so spiritual and so profound um, that so many in the church miss out, you know, um, so many in the church miss out um, when, yeah, when it's just overlooked. And even in just that um, seemingly, um, you know, well-intentioned we're not going to talk about it. Right. Um, or that seemingly, I said, you know, I feel like even that is probably worse than <laughs> wrestling with it. Right. Um, yeah. So I would love to, um, just kind of wrap up here with you, um, talking, I would love to hear just about, um, your experiences of, you know, putting this book together, what that was like for you. Um, you know, where, I mean, I know obviously where this idea stemmed from, but where did this, you know, the process of creating, you know, because um, the process of writing a book is a process of birthing and creating and um, yeah, making something out of nothing. <laughs> so if you want to talk a little bit about that. I didn't plan to write a book. 
And I am still kind of surprised when anyone reads it. (laughs) I I wasn't really expecting that. And I think I share so much of myself and my story and so much of my spiritual abuse and trauma in the book as well, that when people have responded to it, it has been really honoring, not just of the me now, but of young, young me, young Amy, who really pleaded with people to care about disabled folks and was often silenced or dismissed. And so in some ways the book is doing that work of inner healing for myself that I didn't even know was possible. Oh, that's so good. It's also created communities of disabled folks or of other people reaching out to me and saying, I want to learn more. And that's Mm -hmm. something that I have rarely had in church spaces as well. But all of that is to say, I didn't really write the book for me or even for other disabled people, but for non-disabled people who want to learn more. Right. I think so often when we talk about justice, when we talk about co-flourishing, when we talk about ways that we are decolonizing and dismantling white supremacy and misogyny and transphobia and all of these things, ableism is left out and disabled mm-hmm. people are left out and and too frequently in the church it's and this is in my experience all churches mm-hmm. it's not even really considered part of diversity right. or part of justice and so i wanted to share my story as a way of inviting people to reconsider some of their assumptions and just to learn together this is just my story. It's, you know, it can't be, it can't be, um, every disabled person's wishes or desires. And also my story is, um, specific to my situation and my privilege as well. Mm -hmm. But hopefully the use of my story can be a gateway for other people to share their stories, for other people to learn what they've missed out on. And, to really value disability wisdom and knowledge, not in a pitying way, but in a way that can help us all. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Um, And this reminds me so much of, you know, so much of what Awarita Faith is pointing to. And and you had mentioned this earlier, right? The notion that what if our greatest theologians are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians at all. And I, you know, 100% see that in the notion of of disability and disability theologians. Um, I know that I have learned so much um, from disabled folks, and I have learned so much about myself, about God, about, you know, these systems that oppress. And and you mentioned how, um, you know, we talk about, right, homophobia and transphobia, and we talk about, um, you know, patriarchy and sexism and all the, and all these isms, racism, um, and disability is left out, right? Or I guess ableism uh, is is left out. Um, but it's important, I think, to point out how all of these systems are all interconnected, right? Um, so yeah, one last question. Um, can you just talk to that notion about, about how it's interconnected, about how patriarchy and about how um, you know, white supremacy and about how all of these are connected, just so folks can sort of connect these dots and understand that um, if we're not, you know, talking about ableism in our conversations of the isms and of these systems, then we're not talking about the full picture. 
Absolutely. And I love in your book how you talk about how the colonizers' ways become normal and then no one questions Mm -hmm. them. And I think that's exactly what has happened with ableism. Like other idols, it makes itself invisible so that we don't question what we're worshiping and we we don't realize, oh, what we're worshiping are non-disabled bodies and thin, white, cishet, non-disabled bodies. Right. And those are always centered. And so then we don't realize the harm that that produces for everyone else, particularly those who are multiply marginalized. So ableism, I think, is a good way of connecting these because it's Yes, discrimination against disabled folks, absolutely. But more broadly, it's a system that values some body minds over others. And we see the connections being made there with racism, colonialism, ideas of what is normal, ideas of who is intelligent or what is wisdom, as we've talked about, ideas of excellence. And it essentially says that if you can't conform your right. body mind to all of those notions of what is normal and what is good, that you are therefore worth less. Right. And it allows us to think about how when we are reproducing ideas that are rooted in ableism and queerphobia, fatphobia, racism, all of these isms, what we're saying is that there's a hierarchy of humanity. Right. And that goes directly against all of us being image bearers. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, That's exactly what I was thinking. Um, Just the notion of inferiority and superiority hierarchy, like these, that there are, um, yeah, uh, people that are, or, you know, uh, the system tells us that there are people because of the way that they perform that are higher, you know, in the, I don't know, system I you know yeah. they're just higher the ladder I'm sorry. I don't know right I'm like uh, I don't yeah. Know. yeah um I'm sorry I um, think yeah. you were gonna say something else go ahead no yeah well I think I think probably most of us know not to say that part out loud like we probably would know to not say oh I think that person is less than human oh right but 100%. it comes out in the yeah. way that we treat one another and exactly. who's who we value, who mm-hmm. we follow, whose word we believe, yep. what type of work we consider theology, what exactly. type of work we consider worthy of paying people for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And where, um, as you mentioned, where we get our knowledge, who we listen to, where who we learn from. Um, yeah. And and even yeah, how we exist in the world, you know, because who we're listening and learning from. Um, you know, matters as far as like how we engage in the world and how we're, you know, gonna treat our children or raise our children, you know, like it's, it's so, um, it doesn't just stop there at like who I'm looking to for wisdom, but where I'm passing or how I'm passing on that wisdom in the world, um, which is not going to be a full, you know, way of knowing or being, it's not going to be a full, um, yeah, image of God. Like I like to say, I think I say this now with the faith, but you know, the image of God is a collective, you know, I like to think of the image of God as collective, you know, and we need all people um, to speak into that image of God. And if we, you know, take the, the, what we were just talking about, you know, Jesus, a a disabled God in seriously, then 
that's part of the fullness of the image of God. And so we only get a small glimpse of the image of God if we're looking at, you know, the, uh, yeah, the hierarchy of what it means to be human. Um, so yeah. Anyway, thank you for this conversation. It was so fun chatting with you. Uh, and I'm looking forward to doing it again when your book comes out. Yeah. If you want to let folks know where they can find you and learn more and, um, yeah, all of that information. Well, I'm sometimes on Instagram at Dr. Amy Kenny, sometimes not as an introvert. <laughs> and I also have a website where you can find more about the book, but more importantly about how to start the work of disability justice in whatever space you find yourself in. So there's information on there and that's amy-kenny.com. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so very much for um, just the work that you're doing, sacred, holy, and hard work, because it is very personal and it has to do with your body and you, you know, who you are. And, you know, that is always such vulnerable hard work. And so thank you for that gift. Um, we don't deserve it. And um, yeah, I'm just so looking forward to your book releasing. Thanks. Thanks, Kat. Thank you so much for listening to The Protagonistas. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.